Many writers have found inspiration in New York City, but for longtime New Yorker writer Adam Gopnik, the city is more than just a great place to write. It's also a great place to raise kids. Good morning. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Many of the essays in Gopnik's latest book focus directly on parenting in New York City. Gopnik recently dropped by our studios to talk about his book, Through the Children's Gate. Adam Gopnik, thank you so much for coming in. Pleasure to be here. You were born in Philadelphia. Yes, I was. Raised in Montreal. Absolutely. When did you first lay eyes on New York City? I've been trying to do the spade work to figure out exactly when it was, but I was four or five years old, and the Guggenheim Museum had just opened on 88th Street. And my parents, um, grad students in Philadelphia, were art-loving and culture-devouring people. And they decided to bring their then two children, they eventually would have six, to New York City to be there when the Guggenheim opened. And my mother sewed, um, and you have to forgive me for telling you this, but it was her decision, not mine, a little mustard-colored velvet suit for me and a matching dress for my sister, and off we came to New York City, where I had never been before. And it was one of those days in a lifetime. Uh, We waited in line outside the Guggenheim. We walked up the ramp. We walked down the ramp. We went out for blintzes at a kosher restaurant, and we ended up spending the night at my great aunt's then apartment on 115th and Riverside Drive, my great aunt Hannah, who 25 years later would be the witness at my wedding. And I looked out across the Hudson at the Palisades, just the apartment buildings in the Palisades, and I thought to myself, this is the greatest city in the world. And I somehow thought as a five-year-old that the lights of New York were the lights across the water, that I was looking not at the lights of New Jersey, but actually at the lights of Times Square and the Chrysler Building and everything that had entranced me all day long. And that sense that New York is always elsewhere, that you're always looking at it from a distance, is one that I think has stayed with me through a lifetime. Yeah, you've written that even when you're in New York, you kind of long to be in New York. D- don't you feel that way? I Certainly, whenever I'm leaving New York, whenever I'm on my way to the airport on in the early morning and I pass through it, I say, damn, where was I? This whole city's here to be grasped and enjoyed and entertained. One of the odd things about New York, I think, and I think this is true for almost everyone, but it certainly is true as you get older and more set in the city, especially with a family, is that you do less and less. Your sense of possibility remains. There's jazz clubs for me. I love jazz. And, and I always assume when, when, when I get to New York, I'll be the, you know, Mr. Lucky, Mr. Broadway, going from the Vanguard to Sweet Basil and so on. I get to a jazz club maybe once a year now, the way life goes. And yet it remains one of the reasons why you remain in New York. And that sense of constant aspiration, which is never quite fulfilled, is, I think, part of the allure of New York. You left New York, though, for five years to go to Paris to write about being in the City of Lights for The New Yorker. I did indeed. And I am a man of of simple tastes. I've been involved with the same woman for 30 years, and I have two cities that draw me. One is Paris, and the other is New York. It's sometimes funny because my stuff is sometimes uh, stocked in the travel section of a bookstore, and I am probably the single worst traveler uh, around. I get car sick about four blocks from home. I like home, and home for me, what feels like home for me, what draws me to home is New York and and Paris. So yeah, I went to Paris for five years and was delighted to do it. I've always loved Paris. But as I say in the book, in Through the Children's Gate, though I love Paris, I believe in New York. And finally, one of the things that sent us home from Paris was an absence of that sense of belief. And by belief, I don't just mean the kind of, if you can make it here, you'll make it anywhere, George Steinbrenner, Donald Trump kind of belief. But New York has always, and to a decent degree does still, represent a certain set of values, plurality, possibility, density, which Paris does not. Paris is an 
an absolutely extraordinary and alluring place in French civilization. It's one of the great contributions to the world. But it is largely fixed and set, and you can choose to attempt to enter it or not. New York is still in the process of being made. It's changed a lot, and some of the changes are not appealing. But nonetheless, New York still represents that vital sense of possibility and hope, not just to me, I think, but to the world. And coming back to New York was about trying to uh, be a citizen of that city of possibility again. Was it important for you that your children were raised here in New York? You have two young children, Olivia and Luke. It was hugely important. We looked down the barrel of remaining in Paris as expatriates and having them go to French schools where they would doubtless get a spectacularly good education. French schools give kids a very good education, but at the price of permanent suffering. Kids in Paris suffer till they're 17 or 18. There's no happy teenager in Paris. People don't have good memories of that time. And finally, there would be a kind of gap between their experience of the world and our experience of the world. And specifically, we wanted them to have a sort of classic progressive education in New York City. When you returned to New York, you said that you wanted your kids to pass through the Children's Gate, not the Stranger's Gate, and through the Children's Gate is the name of your book. People would be surprised that these are real places. Yes, it's amazing to me. Even New Yorkers who have passed by them a million times don't know that they exist. When Olmsted and Vaux were doing the design of Central Park, partly, I think, as a joke, but partly as a very serious symbol, they gave each one of the entrances to Central Park the name of a a kind of imaginary social group who would march through into the park. There's the Miner's Gate, the Scholar's Gate, the Engineer's Gate. There's the Stranger's Gate on the Upper West Side. And then there's my favorite, the Children's Gate, which always calls to my mind the notion of sort of massed regiments of children entering like the Union Army, entering Atlanta into the park. And it's a real place. It's at 76th Street on the east side of the park. Now, it's called the Children's Gate now in part because there's a playground right there, and I have been through it hundreds of times to take my kids to the playground. But it also represented for me a couple of other things. One was the simple reality that New York had, against all expectations and probably against all probabilities, become a place that was welcoming to children, a place where people came to raise families. And also because the idea of the Children's Gate, by through the Children's Gate, I also meant that when you have children, you go through a gate, at least in my experience, larger than any other gate you pass through in life. You get born, you have children, and then you grow old and die. The, having children totally transforms, at least for me, your whole sense of the world. And you really feel after you have kids that you have gone through a gate. You've ceased to be a ship, a boat out on your own voyage, and you have become a port, a harbor for someone else. That's the children's gate for me, and that's what we went through. I have to ask you about Charlie Ravioli, mm-hmm. your daughter's imaginary friend. How's he doing? Charlie Ravioli is probably the most famous character that I have ever reported on. I had nothing to do with inventing him. He was the invention of my then three-year-old daughter, Olivia. He was her invisible friend or imaginary playmate in a classic three-year-old way. But what gave him a particularly New York quality was that he was always too busy to play with her. And she would get on her little cell phone or play cell phone and try and call him. And she would say, okay, call me. Call me when you get in. And she'd look at us and say, I always get his machine. And then at dinner times, she would announce after a day, of course, when she just stayed at home and went to Central Park to the zoo, she would say, I bumped into Charlie Wavioli today. Uh, We had a cappuccino, but then he had to run. So she invented this character was sort of the prince of our disorder, the prince of Manhattan, uh, New York-centric busyness. He's been doing well. Of course, in Olivia's life, he's sort of long ago passed out of her life. She's seven years old now, and the difference between a three-year-old and a seven-year-old is the difference between a 30-year-old and a 70-year-old. But after I wrote the story, Bumping Into Charlie Ravioli, that made him well-known, his life did continue, and he got married to a girl, as I report in the book. He got married to a girl named Quida, 
uh, and they had a honeymoon in a place called, called Cornfields, Olivia explained to us. And then, and this was sort of the most interesting twist, Quita died, Olivia reported at lunch one day, of a strange disease called bitterosity. And I don't know where she got the word. She just has that kind of odd uh, poetic gift of coming up with these things. But as soon as she said it, I knew that bitterosity was the disease that everybody in New York is threatened by. I have friends who died long ago of bitterosity and now sort of vampires walking around. It stands for me for the risks of exasperation, resentment, misery, envy, which is so much the local diseases of New York City. So now not only do we have Charlie Ravioli, but we have the disease of bitterosity to avoid. Your daughter is also the focus of another one of your essays, Her Fish. When her fish died, you wrote about that. What prompted you to write about that experience? Olivia's goldfish, actually a bluefish named Bluey, died one day, and we got involved in a terrible mess because we tried to replace the bluefish with another bluefish that looked just like it in the spirit of Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo, where Kim Novak dies, and then Jimmy Stewart tries to replace her with a Kim Novak lookalike, who in fact turns out to be Kim Novak in the movie. We were engaged in the same kind of subterfuge with Bluey. Um, the, you know, it's one, with the way I write very often, something happens, and you sort of tell it around, the way you and I are talking right now. You tell it as an anecdote, as a story over the dinner table. And then most of the time, it just is a story, one of the things you tell your friends and, and, and family. But then sometimes it takes a sort of left turn into a deeper dimension or into another dimension. And when that happens, then I begin to think I have the material for an essay. So with Charlie Ravioli, for instance, as soon as I saw it wasn't just about Olivia's imaginary friend, but it was about the whole problem of business, I thought, I can write something about this. With When Bluey died, though it was terribly sad and we were all, all blue about it, it was also that um, my son Luke at the same time had become, as 10-year-olds will, obsessed with what we would call the problem of consciousness, but which he called the thinking and feeling thing. What does it feel like to be alive? Kids at 10 are fascinated by that, the way kids at 3 have imaginary friends. What does it feel like to be alive? What would it be like to be a fish or a pig or a dog? And what would it feel like not to be alive, to lose consciousness completely, to die? And so that much deeper and more disturbing uh, vein of reflection on his part sort of ran together with or could be brought together in a kind of contrapuntal way with the simpler story of a, of a six-year-old losing a pet. So it's whenever, you know, whenever I can make that kind of left turn into traffic where uh, a simple anecdote about ordinary life suggests uh, uh, a kind of longer trip, another horizon, that I begin to think that I can turn what's simply an anecdote into an essay. Your son, Luke, really seems to be many years ahead of himself, especially when he came back here to New York. He really noticed things that other kids perhaps would never notice. Well... Being raised in Paris, he was he was naturally hypersensitive to all the things about New York that were different. He had not seen a lot of cartoons, for instance, when we got to when we came home. Uh, his life had been mostly spent on videos. He'd seen Barney, which I write about in Paris to the Moon, but not that. So when he came home, he would watch Saturday morning cartoons. He was six years old, seven years old, um, with absolutely kind of rapt, sober, unamused fascination. And he would come to me and say, "Dad, why in a cartoon when someone goes through a wall do they leave a hole exactly the same shape as them?" Well, of course, we all grew up with that as a convention, but he had never seen the convention, and he had to learn it as an acquired language. Um, he also is a he's a he's a reflective kid. I hope not a precocious kid, but a reflective kid with, you know, it's one of the deepest things that that you can either be born with or not is a sense of mortality. And some children just hatch out with a sense of mortality. Most kids, including myself, hatch out with a sort of indifference. The idea of mortality, of death and dying is something that's very remote. It's an abstract idea. But for some kids, it just is real. It's like Linus in the Peanuts comics. He has that, that sense. And Luca is like that. And it's both 
challenging and very moving and at times uh, worrying because you don't want your kids to have too strong a sense of mortality. And, of course, that sense of mortality on his part was reinforced by having to live through 9-11 and its aftermath. Many of your essays do focus on 9-11, and you talk about the difference between anxiety and fear. Mm -hmm. What are the differences? I'm glad you mentioned that. For me, that was one of the crucial moments in the book, and very few people sort of caught it. The point I was trying to make, and I was using the little metaphor of riding the buses against riding the subway. Uh, That was the object of the essay, but not its subject. Its real subject was anxiety and fear. New Yorkers have always been anxious. Woody Allen is anxious. I'm anxious. Our voices tremble. Our hands move too quickly. We're anxious. We're an anxious race, New Yorkers. And the thing about anxiety is though it's painful, it leads us to psychiatrists and miseries of various kinds, it's fundamentally activating. If you're an anxious person, you do a lot. That's one of the things that happens to anxiety. It's it's productive. Uh, Fear is not. Fear is a paralytic. It it's, it stops you down. It keeps you from acting. It makes you want to burrow in, bunker in, in some way. So the bus for me became a kind of image of that. The subway is anxiety, but the bus is, is fear. And my sense is that in the years immediately, the two years immediately after 9-11, New Yorkers for the first time were fearful in a way they had never been before. They weren't anxious. They'd always been anxious. They were fearful. And as a consequence, the city had a slightly paralyzed and frightened, in plain English, quality that it, it had never had before. I think that's largely passed now through sheer inertia and sheer endurance. But it was very strange to see anxious New York turn into frightened New York. You described the time before 9-11 as the bubble decade. Mm-hmm. Do you think that since 9-11, a protective bubble has once again started to form over New York City? It's a good question. Uh, the two things I think have happened. Certainly, the we have passed through the dark shadows of that anxiety. And one of the most moving things that I've ever witnessed is to see how New Yorkers en masse by the millions without consulting each other, but just through necessity, decided that they would live their lives rather than living their fears. And this is a time when much of the rest of the United States was choosing to enact their fears rather than live their lives. And one of the moving things about that is if you choose your life over your fears, you have to choose your hopes because you can't live literally without hope. At the same time, I don't think that we can ever return to quite that bubble state, that bubble civilization we lived in before. That's happened in the past in New York. You know, the late 90s in New York, when I was living abroad and we'd come back to New York then, I think reminded me very much of what Scott Fitzgerald wrote about the 20s, about the 1920s in New York. It wasn't just booming. New York is often booming. It was booming in the 80s. It was booming with a degree of ecstatic frenzy that I don't expect to see replicated again in my lifetime. There was, if you remember, a sense of hope as a kind of fuel, fueling everything. It was a kind of clean boom as opposed to the more sordid boom of the 80s. I don't think that can ever come back. I think that that bubble is shattered. I hope, and I hope it's not too sententious to believe, to say that What's come in its place is not so much a bubble as a sense of realism, a realistic calculation of our risks, a realistic calculation of the joys of living in the city. And I hope in not too narrow or chauvinistic a way, a new and more realistic commitment to New York. We're going to stay here. We love the city. We love what it represents. All of us do. And we're not going to be driven from it by our fears. You write in one of your essays about how your son Luke turned to chess and became a Yankees fan following 9-11. Did that surprise you or take you by surprise at the time? 
his his playing chess moved me because what I saw right away was that he became sort of obsessive about chess. He's a bit of a serial obsessive. He's obsessive about magic now. But it was clear that he, like so many of his classmates, like all the other six- and seven-year-olds, was using chess as a way of controlling one small part of the universe. It's one of the ways kids deal with difficulty and harsh experiences to say, I'm not going to pay attention to that. I'm going to pay attention to this. And this, in this case, being chess. It's a very healthy way of, it's a healthy form of escapism. So I wasn't surprised by that. His being a Yankees fan totally threw me off. I had never thought that I would ever have to deal with being a Yankees fan. Like a lot of New Yorkers, and certainly a lot of adopted New Yorkers, I've always been a Yankees hater. I hated Steinbrenner. I hated the New York, New York at the end of it. I hated the whole Yankee ethos, if I can call it that. And yet for Luke, as a kid growing up in New York, as rather than as a pilgrim who came here, the Yankees were just the local team. They were the guys who were on television. They were the Kansas City Royals. They were the Brooklyn Dodgers. They were just his team. So I couldn't, and at that moment in 2001, if you remember, they were seemed to be almost like underdogs, and they were playing very gallantly and very well, and he became a huge Yankee fan. And I had to accommodate to his fandom. And to this day, I have to do it. He's a big Yankee fan. We go up to the stadium, and I have to grit my teeth and say, his Yankees are not my Yankees. We're not rooting for Steinbrenner and insane amounts of money and wild arrogance. We're rooting for the local team. And that's sort of my ultimate accommodation with New York, is that I am now a Yankee fan. Do you think your parenting has changed as a result of 9-11? Is it harder to be a parent in New York City? Yes, it's harder in the sense that we never, as we were talking about a moment ago, we were never fearful before as parents. We were, we were we worried about a million things. Parenting is worrying, but not fearful. And you never had to face the existential question, should we stay here at all? Is it unsafe for my children in a profound way? Of course, generations of parents did that in the 60s when the crime wave was at, at its peak. But that was a different kind of, of adjustment. That was... Um, specific rather than sort of apocalyptic in some way. So, yes, I think it has. I think that everything becomes more fragile and therefore more precious after a shared experience like that. And I think that you become, well, as a parent, you always are overprotective. It's the it's the occupational disease of parenting is being overprotective, particularly when you're older parents, uh, as we are. By older, I don't mean in their 50s, but people in their 40s. And you have to learn to let go. And you have to learn from the kids above all. I think that's the, that was the key lesson my parenting learned when the way it changed was that the children are often frightened, but they refuse to live in fear. They can't live in fear. There's a beautiful movie not many people know called Hope and Glory by John Borman. And it's an autobiographical film about growing up during the London Blitz, which was a true apocalypse. It was, it was ongoing and it was steady. And it's about this little boy, Borman himself, loving his life, luxuriating in the wild festivity and excitement of this life in the Blitz. I think that's a profoundly true, if mildly unsayable, fact about childhood. And we learn from the kids. Our parenting changes because we learn from the kids that you can't live in fear. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning. I'm George Polarki. Our guest today is New Yorker writer Adam Gopnik. He's with us this morning to talk about his latest collection of essays, called Through the Children's Gate. You've said that the only way to truly make a life in New York is to compose a private map in your mind. What exactly do you mean by that? I think that Roger Angel, the colleague of mine at The New Yorker, once wrote years and years ago that everybody who lives in New York, because New York is so confusing, so perplexing, so varied, we all make a private mental map in our heads of the city 
that we get around with. Uh, I, we were just talking a moment ago. I know exactly where the Bronx Zoo is, but I don't know the rest of the Bronx well. But in my map, it's like Saul Steinberg's famous map of the city. You have these giant areas and you have these small areas. My wife, who's a, uh, who loves shopping, uh, whenever we get in a cab to go someplace, she'll always give the cab driver directions. She'll say, oh, we're going to the men's store at Bergdorf's. <laughs> and so he just knew that. It's a big feature on her map, and it's non-existent on the map with the taxi driver. And I think that that's the way we get around in New York, I, both in the most practical sense that we know bits of the city, and we, it's hard to know it all, but also in the emotional sense that we have to construct an individual map to manage the city at all. And one of the things that happens, I think, to everybody in New York is that you arrive here intending to encompass the city. We're going to swallow it whole like the sailors in Wonderful Town. Uh, we got a, one whole day to see the town. We think, well, I'll have a lifetime to see the town. And then you don't. You end up living in two or three blocks with a dry cleaners and a coffee shop. And we, my son and I once figured out that we could buy everything we would need in life except men's clothing while crossing only one street in our Manhattan block. And that becomes your real life in New York is the life of six or seven rooms, five or six people, four or five stores. And it's beautiful because it exactly has that sense of a tiny microcosm within this vast a kaleidoscope. So that becomes your mental map of New York City. And I think everyone has different ones. Now, that may be true in any big city. I, maybe that's so. But I think it's much more intensely true in New York because it's so compressed and so dense that you have to fight your way through to a map. The city doesn't belong to you. One piece of it becomes yours. How evolving do you think that map is? And did that map change for you after 9-11? Hmm. Um, it changed in a very literal way, if I may say, because I happen to be, I'm, you know, I'm an essayist by vocation, but a reporter by trade. So I was out on my feet for the entire week of 9-11, walking the city. I was downtown. I was uptown. I was midtown. I was on the boat that they used as the emergency uh, center after the one in the World Trade Center failed. And in a very literal sense, I had a very extended sense of New York. I was up in Harlem the, and of its of its resources. New York is an incredibly resourceful place. And as I write in the book, one of the things that impressed me was that all of the sort of the deadwood city bureaucracy acted with incredible alacrity and efficiency in that unbelievably trying and difficult time. And so any, whenever anybody talks about, oh, the deadwood of the New York City bureaucracy, I have no sympathy with them. Those guys do a fantastic job. But and so in that sense, it expanded just, just physically. I was on my feet, and I was looking at things. And in another sense, I suppose, I don't know if the map itself changed. I, if I were a, a, a grander and more moral person, I would say, yes, it expanded, so I included more people and more kinds. But I don't think that really happened. I think sort of the title of the map changed a lot. I had always thought of New York as essentially a kind of new Rome before, this great, filthy, powerful, imperial city. And after 9-11, New York became, for so many of us, like Venice, it suddenly became fragile and weird. You suddenly became aware, this is a city as strange in its way as Venice is. Its principle is density rather than wetness, but it's bizarre, and it's endangered. It doesn't have to go on. The future could look nothing like this, as the future after the 17th century looked nothing like Venice. The future could look like all those edge cities. It could look like Los Angeles. It could be the cities of cars and uh, spread and sprawl. And that was... Uh, a shocking feeling to think that you might not be in the cockpit of the world, but in the in the back seat in a different way. You underwent psychoanalysis with a true German-born Freudian. What was that like? Well, I was. This is the essay is called "Man Goes to See a Doctor" in the book, and I was sort of the. I say in the book that I I think I may have been the last person to have a true old-fashioned. Now, now it wasn't true six days a week lying on a sofa talking about my dreams. But with somebody who had had direct laying on of hands from Freud, who spoke in that, with that kind of comic psychoanalyst 
accent that we know from 50s movies. So what do you think your troubles are? That, that kind of thing. And it was at the end of, you know, psychoanalysis has lost a lot of its luster now. And as I say in the book, it was, I think I was sort of like the last man in the 16th century to go to an alchemist with a lump of lead and hope to see him turn it into gold. It was an amazing experience. It was funny in one way because my analyst, Dr. Grosskirth, was uh, in some ways at the end of his career. He's a man in his 80s. And he was, you know, he had accumulated a lot of wisdom apart from Freudian wisdoms over the time, which he was eager to dispense. So he didn't mind gossiping about literature or giving me words. And it was frustrating in some ways because the things he told me were often seemed at first extremely fatuous. We, I, you know, used to be more than I am now an, uh, an intellectual. And I would write angry pieces and he would say, the thing you must remember, I always try to tell you about fights among intellectuals is no one cares. I say, no one cares? What, what kind of healing is this? What kind of help is this? But of course it's true. No one really does care, which doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but you have to do it with an ironic sense of its inconsequence. And at the very end of our time together, just before I left for Paris, he said to me uh, when he was ill, with, from his heart and soul, the thing you must remember is that life has many worthwhile aspects. And again, on the plane to Paris, though, life has many worthwhile aspects. That's the thing to remember. But you know what? It is. I, I don't know wiser words than that life has many worthwhile aspects. Now, that obviously took you time to realize that you were gaining something out of these meetings. Years, in fact. It took me this, the full six years. You know, so the funny thing is, is, as I look back on it now, oh, what is it now, uh, 15, 16 years after it was finished, or, uh, I think uh, I benefited inestimably from that and that the deepest truths of life are often the most banal ones. You're Jewish, but far from an expert on the religion, and that comes out in your essay, A Purim Story. I don't even know what a Purim Spieler is. What is a Purim Spieler? I got asked. The Purim Spieler is a guy who gets up at Purim, uh, the Jewish uh, the Jewish Spring Festival, and s- tells a kind of comic version of the story that's of Purim that's in the Book of Esther in the Bible. I had never heard of it before in my life. I am Jewish, but not a Jew. I have a very Jewy background, but my parents were atheists, and I've never had had almost no exposure to the religion as a kid growing up. So when they asked me, the Jewish Museum asked me their Purim Spieler, having spotted, despite my lack of Jewish knowledge, that I was obviously and transparently a Jew, which I think anybody reading my stuff would know just from its manners and, and the kinds of jokes I like, I was totally at a loss. I had no idea what Purim was. I mean, I knew vaguely, but I didn't even know what time of year it was. David Remnick, the editor of the magazine, couldn't believe that when I he said, you really don't know that? I said, no, I really don't know that. I had to learn. I had to take a crash, crash course in the Book of Esther and in, in Judaism. So I went to see Rabbi um, Shorsh, who was then the head of the Jewish Theological Seminary, a great rabbi, an amazing guy, great teacher. And he sort of gave me a kind of quick, you know, it was like the guy who has to land the plane in an airport movie, right, you know, on the way in. He gave me a kind of quick and dirty rundown in what uh, the Book of Esther was all about. And what was moving for me about it was that he explained to me that the Book of Esther is a sort of spoof comic chapter in the Bible that's really about the experience of Jews like myself. I don't know if you remember, but Esther in the... In the, in the book, though she saves Jews from massacre, is completely assimilated. All of the Jews in the book of Esther are completely assimilated Jews at the court of Persia. And yet they managed to do good for their people nonetheless. So this, this chapter, which I had to spoof and burlesque from the point of view of an assimilated court and city Jew, was about uh, the experience of court and city Jews. So it ended up being very moving to me and made me feel that, uh, as I say at the end of the story, that though it may be too late for me to be uh, Jewish all the time. At least one can be Jewish in the clutch. 
Are you working on any special projects right now, now that this book is finished? Well, actually, I just, um, uh, Jonathan Four, Jonathan Safran Four, uh, asked me not long ago if I would uh, write a, a chapter in a new Haggadah, a new Passover book that he's preparing. And I said, I said, I guess so. I mean, I'll be my, so I'll be my one Jewish project. Uh, other than that, I'm, I wrote a book for children a year ago. I published a book for children a year ago called The King in the Window, which was essentially for my son, my then 10-year-old son. And I promised my daughter that I would write her children's book now. And she gave me a title for it, Steps Across the Water. So I have to write that. And then I think I'll try and assemble. Um, this is very much a book through the Children's Gate about parenting in New York, about bringing up children. But there's a whole other experience of New York, which is the experience of being a young lover of the city and of a, of a woman, in my case, arriving in New York and uh, coming through the Stranger's Gate. And I think I'll write a book, uh, another collection of essays called At the Stranger's Gate, trying to write about the romance of New York as you experience it as a newcomer. Are your kids aware that you write about them? Oh, sure. They regard it, I think they regard it with some amusement because the thing is, is that what I write, though I hope it, it feels credible, is like a holographic representation of reality. It's illusory. The, the three-dimensionality it has is illusory because I choose you know, stray pieces of their experience and then I enlarge on them. I dramatize them. And they know that it's only a tiny piece of their experience and doesn't correspond to their own internal sense of their lives. So that Charlie Ravioli, for instance, though uh, not hardly everybody, but a lot of people know about Charlie Ravioli and they meet Olivia and say, how's Charlie Ravioli? And she sort of baffled, looks, because that's long in her past. That's as removed deep in her past as uh, something that happened to you or I when we were 12. So she's perfectly content with it, but she finds it odd that people would be so concerned about something that was so long ago for her. It was a tiny piece of her life, which I turned into a large story in my work. So they understand the disproportion between their lives as they actually live them and my stories as I write them. And in any cases, I tell them all the time, if you didn't want to be written about, you shouldn't have chosen to be born to a writer. Adam Gopnik, thanks so much. It was a real pleasure. Adam Gopnik's Through the Children's Gate is published by Knopf. Remember, you can find archives and download podcasts of Cityscape at WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks for listening.